Welcome to the July 3rd OA Rise Speaker Meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. My name is Cassie and I am a compulsive eater and your host for this meeting. OA Rise stands for Recovery Inspires Shared Experience and we are glad that you're all here. As with all OA meetings, OA Rise is run entirely by OA members who are volunteering their time to make this meeting happen. On occasion, there are glitches in online meetings that cannot be anticipated. Please bear in mind that we are doing our best, so we ask that you take any negative reactions to your sponsors. However, we would be happy to hear from you if you would like to provide us with kind and constructive feedback. Thank you. And with all those who wish to, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, I grant you the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. Wisdom to know the difference. And this is OA's unity with diversity policy. As we extend the heart and hand of the OA fellowship to those who still suffer, let us be mindful of OA's unity and diversity policy, which respects our differences, yet unites us in the solution to our common problem. Whatever problem you may have with food, you are welcome at this meeting. And um, Donnelly is going to read the OA preamble for us. Yes, I'm going to ask her to unmute and then I'm going to screen share with any luck. There it is. OA preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Thank you. Thank you, Donnelly. This is a speaker meeting. At this time, all attendees are muted. This meeting is being recorded so that an audio only recording can be posted on the oarise.org website. Should there be a Q&A and in this meeting and you have a question for the speakers but you want your voice to be heard in recording, please send your question to a co-host through the chat and we'll read the question for you. Here are a few tips for participating in this Zoom meeting. The chat feature is currently turned off and remain so until the end of the meeting. You may chat with any of the co-hosts if you need assistance. Please note that speakers are only listed as co-hosts so that they have ease of access to use the Zoom features. They will not be able to respond to questions in the chat. So if you have any questions or concerns during the meeting, please communicate with the OA Rise co-hosts. You can change your name as it appears on Zoom. To do this, click on the participants tab at the bottom of your screen and a list of attendees will pop up in a window pane. Select your own name, click on the tab that says more and choose rename. If you are willing, Please add your geographical location of your name so that we can see where everyone is from. Out of courtesy to the other attendees and the speaker, if you get up and move around during the meeting, if you need to eat, check your phone, or talk to someone who is in the other room, please turn off your video feeds so your actions won't be distracting to others. 
If it is necessary, we may turn your video off your video feed, but we'll be happy to turn it back on once you're ready. Just send a message in chat to any co-host and we will enable your video again. Please note that specific foods may be mentioned at this meeting. We will take a five minute break at the end of the first hour and again at the end of the second hour. And finally, just a reminder that the opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. And Trish is going to um, ask our 12 step reader. I think Celeste said she would read the 12 steps. And I've asked Celeste to unmute. Um, yes, uh, Celeste Compulsive Overeater. The 12 yes. steps of Overeaters Anonymous. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons who we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. 10, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And number 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you, Celeste. And Jan, I think you had agreed to read the traditions for us. I am a compulsive overeater. My name is Jan. 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as God may express themselves in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not, su they do not suffer, they do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose to carry the OA to carry its message to the compulsive reader who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, lend, or sorry, I'm trying to do three things at once. An OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 
11, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, Jan. And we'll talk about the seventh tradition for a moment. According to our seventh tradition, we are self-supporting through our own contributions. We send all contributions in excess of our expenses directly to the World Service Office to help carry the message to other compulsive eaters. Our median expenses are a Zoom subscription and the OA Rise website, which costs, which includes the cost of extra stories we can upload this week recordings for everyone to hear. Contributions can, made, can be made by PayPal to our email address at info at OA.org, or you can visit our website at oaraise.org and click the Contribute Now button which is easily found on the home screen. A suggested donation of $3 will allow the OA Rice Speaker meetings to continue. And we will pass the virtual basket at our first break. And also another note that during, um, when the speaker is speaking and as we do Q&A and stuff like that, um, you may be spotted light, spotlighted if you're speaking. So if you don't want to see yourself uh, spotlighted, you can just change to gallery view and then that'll make it so that you won't be seeing yourself talking. A lot of us don't really like want to see ourselves spotlighted. Um, today we have Trish, lovely, lovely Trish here to uh, uh, speak and her topic is miracles of the program. So Trish, take it away. Thank you, Cassie. Welcome, my name is Trish and I am a grateful recovering compulsive eater. I'm so thrilled to be here today and to see you all and to have the benefit of yet another OA meeting. Um, I did pick the topic of uh, miracles in recovery. And I kept thinking, what isn't a miracle in recovery? It seems like every part of it is miraculous in my experience. I came into program in December of 1994. Um, in Salem, Oregon. I had just graduated from a, with a graduate degree and had taken a job in Bend, Oregon, which is in central Oregon, um, two and a half hours away from Salem. And so I began to go to meetings in Salem and then I moved to Bend uh, about eight weeks into my program. I moved to Bend the last week of January, 2000, I mean, sorry, 1995 and had, I don't even know, I don't remember how we found meetings at that point in time. We did not have the OA.org website where you could look up a meeting, but I think I called the phone number and I knew that there were two meetings in Bend and I was really excited because I knew I needed program. I knew I needed OA. I'll get back to the, the history behind that. So I came to Central Oregon and went to both of the meetings and Nobody else came. Central Oregon had, uh, OA had died in Central Oregon. So, but I was desperate, which is really, really helpful. And I put an ad in the newspaper that said, desperately seeking OA support group. And the phone number of the house I was living in, which was a friend's mom, um, she was so kind and generous with me. And so we began to meet. I got some phone calls and we began to meet in people's living, living rooms. Um, and now 
27 years plus later, uh, we're we're me we're still meeting, not in living rooms anymore, but we're still meeting. Um, you know, COVID uh, took a bite out of uh, OA. Uh, I think everywhere, but certainly here, um, which is how OA Rise came to be, was in response to the pandemic, wanting to give people the option to get to a high quality, lengthy speaker meeting. Um, twice a month without leaving the comfort of their home or subjecting themselves to exposure to who knows what. The reason I knew that I needed program was my dad was in AA. And my biggest complaint with my dad was that he was emotionally unavailable. He was supportive financially, but he was emotionally unavailable. Our conversations were always superficial. Um, he just wasn't available for me to connect with. I had my older son three months before I came into OA. And what I observed myself was that I was emotionally unavailable for my son. Here's this little tiny baby that I had waited years to have, finally graduated from my um, graduate program and had a baby and really, 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 really wanted this baby. And I was not emotionally available for him and I couldn't deny it. So I knew without a doubt because of my dad's work in AA that I needed to go to OA. And I'm super grateful for that honesty. Um, if I had come into program and somebody had said, I'm your sponsor and you're going to call me at five o'clock in the morning or whatever time, and you're going to report your food and you're going to work steps, I would have said, eh, I'm out, go away. I don't want you. I don't want anything to do with you people. Um, but thank goodness. Uh, and maybe not, <laughs> I was going to say, thank goodness. Nobody did that, but maybe it would have been good. For me. I hear good things happen for people <clears throat> who have that kind of experience with OA. That was not my experience. In fact, um, when I moved from Salem to Central Oregon, uh, I, I had more experience than anyone else in program. Two whole months, woo! <laughs> so um, I, I, we began to meet in people's homes. We, we did have the 12 and 12 book. Uh, we might've had the workbook. I honestly don't know. There were ultimately a kind of, boiled down to there were four people who came to meetings really, really, really regularly. And one of them had a background in AA, which of course is our parent uh, organization. Um, and she brought a lot of AA into the program, um, which I don't think is beneficial necessarily. It's certainly not a bad thing, but we need to make sure that we are OA and that is not identical to AA. I did not go to retreats. I didn't know they existed. I did not have a sponsor because I had more experience than anyone else. So, so I didn't need a sponsor, thank you very much. Um, I did offer to sponsor people. I really didn't know how to sponsor anyone because no one had ever sponsored me and I hadn't worked a step. Uh, about three years and four months into program, 
uh, well, the first miracle in program for me was I stopped having to have Tums with me all the time. I mean, Tums are super healthy, right? They have lots of calcium, right? But I could never figure out why, why my stomach hurt all the time until I got into program. And then it was like, oh, this is weird. I had Tums in my diaper bag. I had Tums in all of my cars. I had Tums in my office. I had Tums in all the bathrooms in our house. And I took them all the time, not realizing that I was causing my stomach ache by eating too much. Never even crossed my mind. Um, so I was like, oh, that's embarrassing. But that was the first miracle of program is I stopped needing to have Tums all the time. Some of the containers even expired. It's like, oh, I didn't even know that could happen. Um, so yeah, that was my first miracle in program. The second one that I can think of at the moment was I said to my, I used to say really regularly, you know, that serenity prayer where you courage to change the things I can, that's really not an issue for me because I have more courage. It's almost a character flaw that I say yes to things that maybe I shouldn't say yes to. And I take on things that maybe I shouldn't take on. It's almost a character flaw, my level of courage. I would say that. And then at other times, uh, but not close together, I would say, I'm afraid to lose weight. And finally, I heard myself say those two things close enough together that I realized, shit, I have to have the courage to lose weight. Ah, no, I don't want to. But I knew I had to. I knew that was the only sane, safe way out for me, the only functional option for me. Um, so I said to myself and to my higher power, look, I have more experience than anyone else in program that I know. I have been in program for three years and four months. And so I need a sponsor who has more program than me. So you show me a, a person in program with more program than me, and I will make that person my sponsor. Very shortly after that, and this is my next miracle in recovery, this lady wandered into our meeting room. I'd never seen her before. She had a red red hair and it was in a bob and she was really slender and very, very cute. A little older than me, but just darling. She walked in the room looking a little hesitant and I said, you looking for a way? She's like, yeah. I was like, no, you're not, you're skinny. You, you don't belong here. And she said, oh, thank God I found the room. And she sat down and I was like, uh, are you sure you're in the right place? She said, yeah, I have six years of recovery, six years of abstinence. I've lost 40 pounds in program and I have six years of abstinence. I was like, oh shit, and now I have to get a sponsor. <laughs> but I was like, okay, 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 okay. So the next day I called her and she became my sponsor and her name was Sue. Uh, Sue and I had many disagreements over the years. The primary disagreement was, according to the philosophy of the program culture, where she came from, my time in program before I was abstinent did not count. It only counted when you were abstinent. And I could see the, the, the argument. And yet, if I hadn't stayed, I wouldn't have been here when I was ready. So Trisha's view of program is, Every day I'm in program counts. Every day I'm in program counts. 
even if I'm not abstinent. Maybe even especially if I'm not abstinent because it is so easy to leave when we're not abstinent. It's such a, a threat, a danger, particularly if weight gain is involved and it's obvious and we know it and, oh, geez, I don't want to be part of this. I don't want people to notice. <sighs> yeah. So if I have messages to anyone, it is, if you abstain from nothing else, abstain from leaving OA. Keep coming back no matter what. No matter what, keep coming back. My second message, get a sponsor. My third message, use your sponsor. <laughs> I've had so many people ask me to be their sponsor and I never hear from them again. So having a sponsor and not using your sponsor is really very much like not having a sponsor. So use your sponsor. Be honest with your sponsor. When Sue was my sponsor, I called her one day and said, hey, Sue, I'm adding this product to breakfast. She said, don't do it. I said, I'm adding this product, project, prog, this product to my breakfast. She said, don't do it. I said, mm, it's my abstinence. It's my body. I will add this product to breakfast. So Sue was mad at me, but she knew better than arguing with me. <laughs> She's like, fine. And I just said, I'm adding this product to breakfast. There's another person in program whose recovery I do not admire, but who eats this product for breakfast. So it must be okay, even though I do not admire her recovery. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazing how um, stubborn I am and really kind of what a butthead I can be. So Sue's like, fine. And about two weeks later, this was a sweet product I was adding to my breakfast. Oh, I don't even like this product. I don't, I don't write, I don't like it. I never have, but I, I don't know. My, my disease started talking to me and it made sense that this other person in recovery, who's, as I said, recovery, I did not admire, um, was using it. And so I could use it. Uh, anyway, I don't even like this product, but I added it to my breakfast. And then about two weeks later, I called Sue and I said, you know, I'm feeling so tired mid-afternoon. I'm just going to add a little pick-me-up in the middle half of the afternoon because I'm just so, I'm just dragging mid-afternoon. She said, oh, geez, Trish, will you just give up that product for breakfast because it's causing your blood sugar to rise and then it crashes in the middle afternoon and you're hungry and now you want more food. Oh, I would not have seen that had I not been honest with Sue. Thank God I was honest with Sue. So she had the insight to give me that suggestions. <laughs> yeah, Sue and I had many little go-rounds and she was often right. I've also had people I have sponsored who have called me with their food every single day for months and months and months. Um, this was pre-COVID because I could see them. And one day in a meeting, I looked at this person across the room and realized that she had gained really a significant amount of weight while calling her food into me every day. And then I started, excuse me, paying attention a little more to the food she was calling in and realized she told me she bought a whole rotisserie chicken and she used a quarter of it in one meal. I never heard what happened to the other three quarters of that chicken. Hmm. So I figured out that this person was not being honest with me. And I was just sick about it. So 
Um, um, so I was on my little rant about sponsoring and my uh, poor food choices and my sponsee lying to me. So I didn't know what to do when I realized that my sponsee was uh, lying to me about her food. And I decided that really the only thing I could do was pray. So I began to pray for her really in earnest, uh, very formally. I am turning this person over to you and to her version of you. And I don't know, I don't know how to help. And within two days, another miracle of program. She called me and she said, I have not been honest with you about my food. And my response was, dang, your higher power works really fast. <laughs> so that was uh, one another experience of recovery. Probably the most significant miracle of recovery in, that I, in my personal life is who I was versus who I am today. Who I was was a person who uh, thrived on anger. I get a lot done in a day and I tend, my, my default mode tends to be anger. Uh, my reaction to life is anger. My reaction to um, adversity is to be pushy and angry. It was very, um, harmful to the people I cared about most. And it was not who I wanted to be, but I didn't know how else to be. So through working the 12 steps, through putting food in its proper place in my life, I went from being a, an extraordinarily sedentary person to being pretty active. Uh, yesterday I did a nine and a half mile hike and it was straight up a hill and straight down a hill. And I was very tired when I was done. And yet it's that good kind of tired. One of the things I realized, I think it was in 2019 or 20, long time into my program, I realized, oh, I'm a working dog, like an Australian shepherd. I have to be worked physically really hard regularly, or I'm not happy and nobody around me is happy. Oh, this is very, very good. I need to be physically tired regularly or life doesn't work for me. I become unreasonable, irritable, pretty awful. <laughs> I backpack, I cross-country ski. I've done some kind of amazing things. Again, as I said before, I tend to say yes to life. I tend to say yes to challenges. Um, in 2016, as I recall, um, I had been skiing for two winters. And at the end of the winter of 2016, I skied around Crater Lake, which is a 33 mile ski. It took us three days. So we had two nights backpacking out in the snow. Um, and Crater Lake is phenomenal. It's absolutely spectacular. That's a whole nother, that whole trip was a little miracle too, which we may have time to get to, but I don't want to, to get too far ahead of um, other people's miracles. 
sometimes my miracles are really, really big, like the change in who I am and how I interface with the world. And sometimes my miracles are really small or relatively small. I um, had the experience when my older son was three, um, something broke. He was in the kitchen and dropped something and it broke. And I was, as was my training growing up in the family I grew up in, I was instantly really angry. And I came around the corner, running into the kitchen, came around the corner, looked down at him and he looked at me, up at me with his big brown eyes and he said, I'm okay, mommy. Oh, <laughs> I hadn't even thought about whether he was okay. <laughs> and all of the anger just drained out of me. And I was able to, to say, I'm so glad you're okay. <laughs> and let's clean up this mess. So and that was a miracle of program. When the same kid was seven, we were in the same kitchen and he did something that made me really angry. And I can't remember what it was, but as I said before, I was easy to anger. So I grabbed him by his little arms and I picked him up and I put his little butt on the counter. And I realized as his butt hit the counter, oops, Jan, you have a question? I'm sorry, but this bomber keeps coming in and I'm not sure how they're getting in because the meeting room is enabled. Um, so I'm not quite sure what to do about that. I keep, I keep kicking them out again. Okay, just a second. Is that the, the 503 phone number? Yeah, yeah. Are you sure it's a bomber? Because he doesn't have a video. Well, I don't know who else it would be otherwise. So, okay. Well, we don't. I've been letting him in from the waiting room. Don't let him in. I won't let him in. <laughs> don't let anyone Got in, it. please. Okay. <laughs> okay I'll <thanks>. stop. <laughs> thanks. So, as my son's little bottom hit the countertop in the kitchen, and my hands were on his uh, upper arms, and I was holding on to him, I realized that I had. He was about seven at the time. I realized that I had just touched my child in anger for the first time and I was horrified and I had no idea what to do. So I did my usual prayer, the prayer I live with, which is, okay, God, now what? And that, okay, God, now what? Combined with just that moment's hesitation that this program teaches us to cultivate I wrapped my arms around his little body and I whispered in his ear, I'm so grateful that I'm your mommy. And he started crying and I started crying and all of the anger was gone. And I can't even remember now what set me off. But I didn't touch my child. I didn't hurt my child when I touched him in anger. I'm pretty sure I freaked him out by picking him up and plopping him on the counter. But I didn't hurt him. And that's different than the household I grew up in. Another miracle of program. Um, I don't want to just talk about my miracles. I'm really hoping to hear other people's miracles too. And I'm sure that we will uh, feed on each other. So I'm wondering if, if you would like to um, share your, uh, a miracle in your recovery. I would love to hear it. We can do a few now and then take our break and then come back for more. Uh, so if you can raise your hand, either physically on the camera 
or by pushing under reactions. At the bottom of your screen, one of the buttons is reactions. And then there's a, a wide button called raise hand, and that will raise your hand so that we can call on you. Oh, Jan has her hand up. Oh, I don't know if someone just came into the meeting room. Anyway, I'm a compulsive overeater. My name is Jan. Um, and I was um, I was in program for about 15 years, maybe. I don't know. And um, I had a real hard time with physical abstinence, but I had a lot of emotional abstinence, um, which is not the same, but it was a start. And um, one of the things, a couple of weird things used to happen that I, I had to say were God. And one of them would be at the very beginning when I was putting money into a vending machine to get a food that I should not have been eating, um, the money would spit back out at me. This would happen repeatedly, repeatedly. And so I eventually stopped putting money into vending machines. And um, another thing that would happen is I would be thinking about going either going to eat something or going to go out to eat something and the phone would ring and it would be an OA call. And um, I just, I can't, I don't believe in coincidences that way. I, I believe that was God. Um, more recently in the last week, I have been uh, measuring and recording my food. And uh, it's remarkable how much extra food I've been eating that my body doesn't need. So I could, I, I, I can't, be doing that on my own that's a god thing that's something reached inside me and said here let's try this and so far it's working thank you thank you jan so that reminded me of um used to be here in central oregon uh we would give out tokens at in-person meetings to celebrate you know, 30, 60, 90 days, six months, nine months, a year, one, you know, two years, three years, four years, and so on. We would hand out these large coins that we called tokens uh, to, you know, acknowledge those um, milestones. And uh, I would be flipping through my coin purse trying to get cash to, to buy something inappropriate. And I'd come across those damn tokens. Like, oh, Guess I'm not getting this today. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> I also learned, and this was to me really, truly a miracle of program. I would, I would, um, sorry, it just left me what I was going to say. Oh, I would pray. Okay, God, take, take my desire for this away. But I would cross my fingers and my toes. I don't really mean it. <laughs> I really don't want this to work. You got it? Wink, wink. I'm crossing my fingers and my toes and I'm saying, take this away. Take my desire for this item away. And I'd be kind of chagrined and embarrassed. And then hours later, I'd realize, oh, crap, it worked. <laughs> I didn't eat that thing. In fact, I've thrown it away because it's no good anymore. Hmm. Okay, it worked, even though I didn't want it to. So I came to believe uh, in a power greater than myself working in my life in my best interest, even when I was not able to act for myself in my own best interest or didn't want to. I remember one year 
it was a big holiday meal like Thanksgiving. And we were in a house where we had the dining room downstairs and the little tiny family room off of the dining room. And then upstairs, we had the living room, large living room. And I was eating a very abstinent meal. Donnelly, I'll call you on you in just a minute. I was eating a very abstinent meal because, you know, there was a bunch of people there. And I had my very abstinent meal and I could hardly wait to do the cleanup. <laughs> so I shooed everybody out of the kitchen through the family room upstairs to the living room and I was gonna clean up, yay! And I walked back downstairs and started walking into the kitchen and just as I came through the threshold of the kitchen, realized, oh crap, I am in my view of the world walking into evil. I am blissfully thrilled, absolutely ecstatically walking into the arms of my disease. But I didn't know how else to do it. And I was really new in program. This is before I was abstinent. So I, I, I thought, okay, just a second. So what do they tell you to do? Make a phone call. No way. Okay, okay, don't make a phone call. What else do they tell you to do? Uh, pray. All right, I think, I think I'd be willing to pray. All right, uh, on your knees. I'm like, what? No way. Oh, you know what? It's better than making a phone call. <laughs> I'll pray on my knees. So I got down on my knees and all I remember saying is help. And I got up and I dusted my knees off feeling embarrassed. And the next conscious thought I had was I was closing the refrigerator door. It hardly shut at all. And I had put away everything and I hadn't even licked my fingers. Huh, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know that was possible. And again, prayer worked for me. So Donnelly, I'm gonna ask you to unmute so you can share a story of recovery. Oh, hi, uh, thank you so much for what you've shared so far. It's really um, inspiring. Um, I think actually the biggest miracle I would have to say is that coming up on three years, I've been abstinent a day at a time by having one goal every single day, and that is to get to bed abstinently. That was my one goal. And so any temptation, I would say, so what do I need to do? I would ask God for help and figure out what I could do to just be abstinent till bedtime and sometimes I went to bed super early but just getting to bed absently and I'd figure out whatever it was tomorrow so that was um the biggest miracle but then this afternoon when I really needed a meeting it, it's almost as if OA rise popped out I mean I don't know even I honestly can't tell you how I ended up at this meeting except that I I just really needed a meeting and I put in something and then it was OA rise and then it was like click here the meeting is now and it's like that is just a miracle and so I I have a um acronym for frog fully rely on God and I use the little apple um iPhone acronym for frog and I put frogs everywhere and it just really helps me to remind myself that if I rely on God I have a chance, like my life can be really good with God. So that's my miracle. Thanks. 
I mean, my sponsor, my sponsor called me like when I needed a sponsor, kind of a similar program to you um, situation when um, I was on the other side of the country and she called and I, I had to do the asking, but she called to make it easy to ask. So thanks. Thanks, Donnelly. That was awesome. <laughs> I love the way spirit seems my experience with spirit, my relationship with spirit is interwoven into all parts of my life. Uh, I own a small business and most of our decisions are made through group conscience. Uh, I'm not just the boss. Um, and it helps cultivate a sense of responsibility and belonging that are invaluable in my experience. Oh, Julie, I'm going to ask you to unmute. Hi, um, Julie, compulsive reader. Um, bless you. You're beautiful. And I lost um, 50 pounds during almost well, 40 pounds during the pandemic without my. Um, regular support system um, when I had, um, so I, that was, I um, am disabled and I go to a center that helps emotionally help me, but um, I, uh, going to OA on Zoom helped me and listening to sermons on YouTube as well, so. Bless you, you're probably, I gotta remember I'm priceless to God. And I'm thinking I won't go to not to a 4th of July thing at night. It'll be too much and it'll work out. No, it'll work out um, to listen to my inner wisdom about that. No, um, bless you. Thank you. See. Um, Thanks, Julie. See. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you. <laughs> so I've been thinking as I've been talking, and I want to share a little bit about my experience of skiing around Crater Lake. It might seem like an outside issue, um, but I'm going to risk it because it, my program was so interwoven with that trip. Um, my then significant other and I were preparing for this trip. And he had years and years and years of skiing. And I'd been skiing for two seasons. Um, and we were talking about doing this really challenging ski, 11 miles a day, at least, um, with lots of up and down, um, carrying a pack, a full heavy winter pack, uh, so that we could backpack, uh, we could sleep out in the snow. Um, and our last preparatory preparation day was on a Sunday and we were leaving on Thursday to drive to Crater Lake. On the way back from our ski on Sunday, uh, I had been in this conversation with Spirit. Okay, Spirit, I'm nervous about this trip. I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to not do it. Please make it clear to me what we, you would have me do and how you would have this work. So we're driving back from our ski. We had done like 11 miles that day, which is pretty challenging. And uh, we see this man on the side of the road. He has this gorgeous long black hair that comes all the way down to like his backside, his butt. 
long waving black hair behind, hanging behind his back. And he's waving his arms up in the air like it's an emergency. And we drove past him just like all the other cars had. And my then significant other said, you know, I don't feel good about this. That guy is not just hitchhiking, something's wrong. And I said, I, I agree. So we went back up the hill and pulled in next to the guy. Uh, and he said, I've, I've made a mistake. I mit, misjudged the depth of the snow and I have uh, caught my truck in a snowbank and I'm, I'm stuck. Uh, can you try to pull me out? I said, how big a truck is it? He's like, well, it's, it's not, it's like a medium sized, smaller, not huge truck. Cause we were only in a RAV4, a Toyota RAV4. So we said, we'll try. So we drove about a half a mile off the highway down into the snow and encountered his truck. And we were able to pull his truck out with some effort. And we got to the other end and he said, well, what were you guys going up to the mountain for? We said, well, actually we were on our way back down from the mountain and turned around and came back up to you um, because we saw you on the side of the road. He's like, oh man, I really appreciate you coming down to, to help me. He, and uh, my boyfriend said, well, yeah, we were just finishing up preparing to go around Crater Lake. The guy perked right up and he said, really? I'm Klamath Indian, which is the tribe near Crater Lake. So I'm Klamath Indian. Indian, you need to be honoring Lao. Lao is the guardian of Crater Lake. Lao is a mountain peak on the rim of Crater Lake. The highest mountain peak on the rim of Crater Lake is called Lao. He said, you need to be honoring Lao if you're gonna to try to ski around Crater Lake. Um, so I was like, that's great. I have, um, <laughs> just as an aside, I completed a two year course in indigenous studies uh, in 2014 um, and was ordained as a minister of walking prayer, which was the name that really appealed to me because I want to be in walking prayer. Um, and so this man says, you need to honor Lao. And my boyfriend says, well, how do you do that? And I said, with tobacco. He, the the um, guy looks at me like, how does the white chick know about tobacco? I'm like, well, you, you don't have to like it, but I do know about indigenous practices. Um, and so at that point in time, I began to communicate, commune with Lao, the guardian of Crater Lake and asking, saying we come in with good intentions and we are willing not to succeed in um, skiing around Crater Lake if that is not what is right for us, um, but we do come with good intentions. Um, and the whole trip was an absolute miracle. Each step of the way where we ran into a challenge, the challenge just evaporated again and again and again and again. Uh, and I'll give you examples after we take our break, but I just wanted to, um, to say, when I, when I worked my program, when, I, uh, when I'm listening, when I pause, when I cultivate the pause, my life is so much richer than it could be. The first hurdle we ran into was it started snowing and we were taking my RV, it's a 30 foot uh, class A <laughs> disposable RV. It's a 1990 old, you can have kids in it, you can have dogs in it, disposable RV. We were driving it down. We were going to spend the night um, at Crater Lake and then take off the next morning to go skiing 
with another couple. The other couple was from Alaska and had lots and lots of experience with snow camping and snow events like this. Um, so we get to Crater Lake and we go to get our backcountry pass and figure out where we can park the RV. And we're told, number one, you can't get the backcountry pass today for tomorrow morning. And number two, you can't, um, you can't stay in the park. You have to drive 21 miles back down the road to get to a, a camp facility. So we were like, oh, oh <laughs> what do we do now? Uh, and the two men who were with us just said, we're, we're going to leave today. So give us our backcountry pass today, which I thought we were going to do. I thought we were going to go uh, up the first hill, which is a mile, mile and a half, really, really, really steep um, up to the bathrooms, which are on the rim. And the bathrooms on the rim are heated and have potable water because of emergencies, in case of emergencies. So I thought we would go up there and spend the night. And they said, well, if you're leaving tonight, then you don't have to take your RV out of the park. You can park it in our, um, our yard. In fact, we'll, pl we'll plow a spot for you so that you can park it in our yard. <laughs> I was like, okay. So we ended up spending the first night in the RV in their yard and we're able to take off the next morning before the office opened because the office wasn't opening until 10 a.m. And we wanted to get on the trail at 8 a.m. Um, so it was, you know, the next hurdle just disappeared. It be, presented itself as a hurdle and then just disappeared. I really felt like Lau was looking out for us. And I, um, we're going to take a break now, a five-minute break. We're going to stop recording and we're going to um, just be quiet and I'll be back in five minutes with more of the story. And I would love to hear your stories of miracles and recovery, uh, just like what we're talking about, the little ways and the big ways that our higher power nudges us toward recovery and a better life. So I'm going to stop the recording. And welcome back. We were just taking a little break. Um, I put in the chat the acronym FROG, F-R-O-G, fully relying on God, which I love. I'm going to be getting some frogs to remind me. Uh, another little reminder that I often have, just on accident, if you believe in accidents, is pennies. Pennies say, in God we trust. And I am a believer in pennies. I, I rarely pick them up, but I always think, gotcha, I'm relying on God today. Super important for me to remember to rely on God because it's easy for me to forget and try to take control and take charge of things. Um, so since nobody else has raised their hand, but I'm very, very happy if you want to raise your hand. Um, and to raise your hand, what you do is under the reactions button at the bottom of your page. If you click on the reaction button, you can have clapping hands, a thumbs up, a sad sign, a little surprised face sign, a, a heart, or a, <clears throat> like a ta-da sign. And just below that is a bar, a long skinny bar that says raise hand. And it looks like Emily has found our bar. So I'm going to ask Emily to unmute. Thank you. Um... 
I want to just say, first of all, Trish, that story you've told so far about your ski trip gave me chills. Um, and um, for me, uh, uh, miracles, I, I can't say specifically. I guess the miracles for me have been that I'm still on this program and I still have hope that there is a recovery in my future. And that also um, the health that my my health situations, you know, I've had some, you know, uh, results from this disease and my body has graciously regenerated to at least a functional and not, um, you know, life-threatening conditions and that it's done that over, you know, so many years, several times is clearly a miracle. Um, any other miracles that have happened in my life, I consider coincidences and they're not as a result of any prayer I do or anything even um, attached to this program, just like bizarre connections that happen, you know, within a few days of each other, things that typically I wouldn't come across, but all of a sudden they're in my life in two separate instances. And I'm like, well, wow, that was weird. And I've started to think of those things as, you know, my higher power, um, which I hadn't before, but, you know, so far I, I probably haven't prayed enough for anything in this regarding this program. Cause I still have yet to receive recovery, but I am, you know, in the meetings, in the rooms, in the fellowship, in my program, I, um, and I'm hopeful for those miracles. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. So I'm gonna continue with my trek around Crater Lake. And again, please, please, please feel free to raise your hands. Um, we got started at about eight o'clock in the morning and we were faced with two choices. One was to take the road up to the top and it's like two and a half miles. The other choice was to go straight up a trail. That's about a mile, very, very steep. And we had gotten 14 inches of snow the night before. So we were going to be breaking trail, which is uh, very physically challenging. And I hadn't done a lot of it up till that point. Um, so we decided we were gonna go on the road. Well, the road clearly says no pedestrians, it's closed. We had to walk past a gate that was blocking it off. The next day, it would be open to let people drive to the top, but not that day. We were right at the end of uh, a season. Um, so we start walking up the road as quickly as we can, carrying our skis because the road has been plowed. Um, even since last night, when we got 14 inches of snow, they've come through and cleared it out. Uh, our friends, the two people from Alaska who were going with us had, instead of backpacks, they had um, sleds they were pulling and there was just enough snow on the road so they could pull their sled sleds. And we put our skis in our backpacks and we're going up the road and this man in a truck stops and says, you're not allowed to be here. And the, the guy from Alaska who was with us said, well then give us a ride. <laughs> like. Oh my gosh, I can't believe the audacity of this guy and, and how hot, he's like a chihuahua, really, really small and kind of hot-headed. Um, 
And so they're having an argument in the road. And I'm thinking, we need to get out of here. We need to get to the top and get going around Crater Lake before we get arrested or something. Um, and so finally the truck driver in exasperation drove off and we began to put pieces together at the check-in the day before where we got our backcountry pass, we figured out that there were no um, forest rangers around because they were, I guess, right at the end of a budget cycle and they were like the next day starting a new budget cycle when the park opened. But until then they didn't have any rangers. So we were like, we really, really hope we're right. And there's no rangers up here who can come get us. Um, but we're going to boogie on up this road. So we went as fast as we could in our snow boots, carrying our skis and our backpacks up the road uh, and got to the top and got started going around uh, the lake. Um, and as soon as I could see Lau, the guardian of Crater Lake, the tallest peak on the rim of Crater Lake, I said, I need to do a ceremony in honor of Lau. And the guy from Alaska who was with us just really wasn't interested in a ceremony. Not, I don't care who participates and doesn't participate. I'm going to have a ceremony because so far everything is working even when it shouldn't in our favor. So I did a little tobacco ceremony, releasing tobacco and honoring the uh, east, the south, the west, and the north, the four directions, and Mother Earth and Father Sky. It's pretty short. It's just a little acknowledgement and releasing tobacco in those directions. Um, and I said, okay, we're ready. And he's like, <laughs> the guy from Alaska is like, you ready already? He, I don't know what he thought I was going to do some kind of long ceremony, but no, it's, it's brief. So then we begin to go around Crater Lake and we get to a, the first avalanche zone. Uh, so there's, it's very steep and there's a wall along the edge of the road and the snow has come down and hit right at the top of, uh, stopped right at the top of the wall that would normally be next to the road but the snow has come down and it's very steep and it ends in this wall. And then on the other side of the wall is nothing. It goes way down there. Oh, this is really bad. If you slip and fall, that's a really long way down. So the two people who were towing um, sleds started to go across and kind of got dragged down to the edge <laughs> uh, of, the, of the rock wall and my then boyfriend's like, follow me. So we go up the hill a little ways and start to go across. And I'm thinking, please, God, don't let me fall and kill these people. Please don't let me fall and kill these people. Don't let me fall and kill these people. Please, please don't let me fall and kill these people. So I did get past them. And the guy below me, the guy from Alaska is like, Trish, you're awesome. Look at how great you're doing. You're just doing great. And I'm thinking he's as scared as I am that I'm going to kill him. But he, it, it, he didn't respond with, he responded with, you're doing great. Keep going, girl. And I was like, okay, I'm going. Eh. And so I get past the avalanche zone. And my then boyfriend said, I'm going to go back and watch them and make sure they get over it, over, you know, away from that area. I want you to just keep going, follow this road, which was really not exactly a road. It was completely snow covered. And it wasn't too hard to tell what was the road and what wasn't the road, but I was a little worried. <laughs> So I said, okay, and I continue on ahead of them, knowing they'll probably catch up with me pretty soon. But as I'm going along, I'm thinking, how do I get out of here? How do, how do I change my mind about this trip? This doesn't seem prudent. I don't know why I'm here. 
I'd, I'd really like to know how to get out of here. So I, I decided that as soon as somebody else needed to leave, I would be their buddy. I would be their companion. So they wouldn't have to go back alone. That we could go back, the two of us together. I would be the volunteer to help get somebody else out. <laughs> that was what I was relying on. So I'm continuing around the mountain by myself through, aval through that avalanche zone. There wasn't another avalanche zone until the next day. And we were trying to decide, are we stopping on this side of Lao or are we going past Lao to the other side, which is two more miles. Uh, so we're, I'm continuing along and eventually they did catch up with me. And by then it was mid afternoon and we had just hit that perfect um, set of circumstances, temperature and humidity where the ski was, the snow was sticking to the bottom of my skis. So I had put my ski down to ski forward and it would stop and I would pick it up and shake it off and a whole inch of snow would come off the bottom end to end of my ski. It was really heavy and I would do the next ski and I would shake off the snow and I do the next ski and there was no slide. There was no glide. It was slower than walking and picking up heavy, heavy skis because they were covered with snow just the bottom of the ski was an inch thick of snow end to end. And I was using a lot of energy to shake it loose. And I was like, I, I can't keep going like this. This is not gonna work. So they catch up with me and I say, I'm sticking. The snow is really sticking bad. And the man who from Alaska who was with us said, I have some special wax, uh, instant wax that I can just rub on the bottom of your skis. My boyfriend's like, don't do it. Don't do it. You'll be too slippery. Don't do it. And I was like, I can't continue. I cannot continue. It's just too hard. Um, so he was really angry. But the guy from Alaska uh, put the Astroglide on the bottom of my skis, on both skis. And I could ski again. And it wasn't sticking anymore. I was like, oh, okay. So we get to about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And this is April. So the sun isn't quite setting, but it is definitely long. Um, shadows happening from the west um, and I have diarrhea I don't know if you've ever done backpacking but if you have an, an issue like that while you're backpacking everyone knows it there are no secrets in backpacking so I have diarrhea and I go take care of what I need to take care of and I'm thinking oh this is so embarrassing and I oh and they decide we're not going to go around Lao. We're going to stop on this side of Lao for the night with this beautiful view of the lake. And they say, it has nothing to do with the fact that you have a medical issue, Trish. We're just stopping early tonight. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> you guys are stopping because you're worried about me. And I can't really blame you. I'm a little worried about me too. <laughs> so we stop for the evening and um, Tucker, the man from Hawaii, I mean, I'm sorry, Alaska, the man from Alaska and I, uh, they had in their sleds, they had towed shovels. Uh, and so he and I used their shovels to dig out a kitchen. The snow was so deep, you could dig out a foot spot and a table spot and seats all around. So we dug out a kitchen and threw the snow into a pile to give us a windbreak. And we set up our tents and we had dinner and slept through the night. I was really, really cold. And I have a hard time sleeping if my feet are cold. And my feet were cold. And we're sleeping on the snow 
in a tent that was a four season tent in good sleeping bags, but I was cold. I was not a happy camper. <laughs> so with inadequate in uh, sleep, get up to head out in the morning and Tucker and his wife take off and I'm ready to go. <laughs> and I begin to go up the very first hill after where we spent the night. It's like a 30 foot drift, 30 foot tall drift. And I took two steps and slip and fall, took two steps, slip and fall. And each time I fell, I had to shake my backpack off, get up, put my backpack back on, take two more steps, fall, take my backpack off, get up, put my backpack back on. And my boyfriend was so mad at me because I had let Tucker put the the wax on the bottom of my skis and overnight everything had iced up and it was really, really, really slippery. And I was extra slippery because of the wax on the bottom of my skis. I didn't realize it then, but Tucker and his wife had taken off like effortlessly straight up that hill. I was like, wow, that's a miracle. Well, it turns out they had skins on and skins are devices you put on the bottom of your skis that make them stick. So you can go straight, straight up a hill. I didn't know skins existed and I didn't have skins with me. When I do a backcountry adventure now, I take skins. <laughs> but he didn't know. The guy I was with didn't believe in skins. So he had failed to mention them to me. So I get to the top of that hill and begin to go through the day. And I keep thinking if I can get halfway around the lake, you know, half the people who try to go around this lake fail. So if I can get halfway around the lake, I'm, I'm, it's equal distance to go the same, to finish or to go back. And so my goal is to get halfway around the lake. Then I really don't have any choice. I can just finish and finish going around the lake. And I'm the whole time thinking, boy, I really hope somebody needs to turn around and go back and I'll go with them. I'll be that super helpful friend and I'll go with them. <laughs> so but nobody needed to turn around. It was really bad. So we continue on around. And at some point, my boyfriend uh, had some issue happened. Like he got way far behind us, which was very unlike him. He was always ahead. Um, and that helped uh, cool his jets about my slow plodding slip and fall approach to going around the, the second day. We got to the halfway point and we stopped for lunch. I failed to mention when we first left the trailhead and we needed to go up the road or um, up the trail, we ran into a couple of guys also going around Crater Lake and they had decided to go the opposite direction. We were going clockwise, they were going counterclockwise. Uh, and so I knew once we meet up with them, we can stop breaking trail. I'll be honest, I hadn't broken trail. By the middle of the second day, I had not broken trail. Tucker, his wife and my boyfriend had broken trail and I had followed them, um, which is much easier than breaking trail. But I didn't know that until the third day. <laughs> so. We get to the halfway point and it's lunchtime. And so we sit down, we have lunch and there are four vultures circling above us. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, even the vultures know we're dead. <laughs> and in the Japanese culture, the number four is unlucky and um, often uh, is a prelude to death. And so I'm thinking four vultures, <laughs> how appropriate, this is really scary. But I just continued. We got going again. We got to a couple of windblown areas where the there was no way to ski. You had to take your skis off and carry them across. 
an area that was maybe 50 yards um, and then put your skis back on and ski until you run into another bare area of the road, um, which maybe we ran into four or five of those in the second day. And so the second night, we finally get to where we're going to spend the second night. And I'm pretty adamant. I don't want to sleep on the snow again. I need to actually get some sleep. Uh, so we found a spot. I didn't know it wasn't allowed. <laughs> Very close to the rim that was windswept like the road had been. And it was dirt. So we set up our tent on that dirt spot really close to the rim. Like you could look down into Crater Lake like 600 feet down. And, you know, got ourselves to bed for the night. In the middle of that night, the second night, I woke up and I had to go to the bathroom. So I go outside and I go to the bathroom. And as I'm walking back, the, the lake caught my attention. And I was like, there's something weird about the lake. What's, what's going on with the lake? It's something's weird about the lake. And I'm looking at it and I'm really trying to figure out because there's weird lights on the lake. And what I realized was what I was seeing was the reflection of the stars on the lake surface, 600 feet down. And I'll never, never forget it. It was one of the most spectacular visions I've ever seen. Just silent. There was no wind, just a little bit of waves lapping at the lake and the stars dancing on the lake's surface. Uh, so I got better sleep the second night. Um, the third day, was we're heading out, we get down to, we, it was quite a ways, <laughs> but we got to a point where we needed to decide, are we going to the right and through two more avalanche areas, or are we going to the left and adding a long cut, like six extra miles that day to avoid the avalanches. Um, throughout the day, because we had gotten 14 inches of snow the night before, we had these things that, um, these things, these big giant snowballs, like as tall as I am, that had come down hills and gathered steam as they went down. And there were circular spirals on the side of these snowballs that they had accumulated snow as they went down these hills. Um, and they had gotten really shockingly big, like as tall as me. And there are many avalanche zones around Crater Lake. At one point, my boyfriend stopped and I kind of ran into him. He said, I was like, so he, he held his hand up to stop me and I gave him a, what do you want look? And he said, shh, avalanche zone. I was like, avalanche. So I got really quiet and we waited for the other couple to get through the avalanche zone. And he said, then I'm gonna go and I'm gonna signal when I get to the other side and then you're gonna go. And your job, if I get sucked up by an avalanche is to watch where I go to try to dig me out. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'll try. So he did go slowly and quietly through the avalanche zone, and then I followed him. I had never been anywhere that was more intimidating than in that avalanche zone. It just felt so heavy and ripe and ready to come down and kill us. Um, and so we went quickly and quietly through the avalanche zone. Uh, and then we got to that point where we needed to make a decision are we adding six miles to today's trek? Or are we going through two more avalanche zones? And it was unanimous. We were going to add the six miles and avoid the avalanche zones. I don't think I was the only one who noticed how intimidating that avalanche zone was. Uh, so 
as we get onto the, the long cut, the extra six miles, uh, I realized, you know, I have not done any, um, I've done none of the contribution toward breaking trail. So I intentionally went ahead of the others so that I could contribute and break trail. So I'm skiing along breaking trail, which is really, really, really hard. Even though we had run into the, the two men who had gone the other way around the lake at lunch the day before, I don't know what they were doing. They weren't sticking to the road. We didn't want to follow their tracks. They were all over the place. So we were breaking trail the entire way around the lake. Um, so I'm now I'm in front breaking trail and I did it for three or four miles and my legs were so tired, just pushing through, pushing through. And for me, that was another spiritual experience because I'm out in front of the others. I'm very alone. There's quite a distance between me and the next person back. And I'm realizing that trail breaking is very much like spiritual trail breaking. You really don't know what you're doing. Uh, I'd put one foot in front of the other and hope for the best. To make a corner, I would go way wide and kind of pass the corner and go back to it because I couldn't be sure it was the corner until I'd kind of almost passed it. Um, from time to time, the snow would get suddenly soft, but you wouldn't be able to see it before you got to the soft spot and you'd be like, whoop, whoop, whoop. okay, I'm up still, I didn't fall. But you wouldn't have any warning that that was gonna happen. And so that was where I came up with the, the term, uh, probably didn't coin it, but I used it, um, spiritual trail breaker, because spiritual trail breakers fumble and make mistakes and do their best and learn from experience and kind of just follow spirit's guidance and let, let life un, unfold uh, and follow it. Um, so we, we continued on for quite a long ways, those extra six miles. And then we got to this, I didn't know it was going to come up because I might not have done as much trail breaking as I did by this point in time, because I was just exhausted. Um, but we got to a point in the trail where it went straight down for about half a mile, went across the valley floor for about a mile, and then went straight up for about a half a mile. And again, I did not have skins. I did not know skins existed. This is where I learned skins exist. Skins are those contraptions you can put on the bottom of skis that make them stick. So you can go straight up a hill. And my boyfriend had been skiing for 40 years and he could go straight up a hill. I couldn't go straight up a hill. I fell and fell and fell and fell. And each time I fell, I had to take my backpack off, get back up, put my backpack back on. I finally ended up um, sidestepping up the entire half mile hill, which is putting one ski up, letting the other ski catch up, putting next ski up, letting the other ski catch up, going sideways up the hill, one step at a time. And again, kept focusing on one step at a time, just like program. You can get around Crater Lake one step at a time. <laughs> you can get through life one step at a time. Um, for me, one of the most amusing parts was getting to the top of that steep hill the trail we were following stopped being marked. The signs stopped, they just stopped. And the two men have their compasses out and their maps out and their GPS coordinate thing out. And the other woman and I look at each other and say, we can only go that way. We're on this peninsula of land. It's a steep drop off all the way around. We can only go 
along the finger of that peninsula. So I know how to get out of here. I think you know how to get out of here. We just have to convince the guys to stop looking at their maps and things and walk out of here. So we did. And eventually they were like, oh, you're right. Like, <laughs> There's really only one way to go to get out of here. So we continued on up the hill, uh, got to the top and found the road back to the entrance. We're probably three miles away from the entrance at this point. And the other woman who was with us is really, really angry. I love this part of the whole trip because she hadn't said a negative word the entire trip. She's a she's an outdoor woman and she's very, very capable. And she's mad, mad, mad because there's a slight uphill on the first mile and a half or two miles of the um, of the way out. And she had read that it was all downhill. <laughs> once, once we found the road, it was all downhill from here, <laughs> but it wasn't. It was just almost flat, but basically slightly uphill. And she was really mad. She was just spewing. <laughs> like, okay. Don't ever disappoint this woman because it's not going to be pretty. Um, so it was, we did eventually get out. My basket came off my ski pole. A basket is the little thing at the bottom that keeps it from going just into the snow. And at Crater Lake, they get 40 feet of snow a year. A uh, lot of snow, a lot, a lot, a lot of snow. And so if you lose your basket, your ski, your ski pole is going to go right into the snow all the way down. Uh, but we were fortunate. My boyfriend was able to find the, the, the missing basket, which was like 30 feet behind me because evidently I was going fast down a hill. Um, and so that was the last big hurdle to, to getting around Crater Lake and getting back to the RV and getting home. So the whole thing was inspired, in my opinion, and my belief system. So I'm really hoping someone else can share a story of a miracle of the program. And again, the way you raise your hand is under the reactions button at the bottom of your screen, if you're on a computer. Um, there are reactions, little icons that pop up and the big long bar on the bottom is raise hand. So I encourage you to raise your hand if you would like to share a miracle of your program. Hi, Audrey. I'm going to ask you to unmute. Hi. Um, I tried to turn my camera on, but it says I can't turn it on because the host has stopped it. Yeah, we had a Zoom bomber earlier. I'll have uh, you. Okay. Would Should I? Like? I'm, I'm okay starting it or leaving it off and having my picture there. I can I can talk as is. Okay, if you can talk as is, that'd be great. I'm working on figuring out how to let you. Uh, Thank you so much, Trish. Hi, everyone. My name is Audrey. I am a food addict. There we go. There we go. I'm a food addict and... Um, um, I've, I've, I've got a few miracles of the program. Um, I'll, 
I'll just share on a couple. One was happened. Uh, it was late. What year are we? We're 2022, 2021. It was late 2020. And um, I had dropped out of program because I got up to, uh, I had done my step seven and had done my step eight and did not want to do my step nine. So I fear got the better of me. Uh, instead of facing everything and recovering, I fucked everything and ran away. <laughs> um, excuse my language. <laughs> and uh, I dropped off the OA realm for, for a bit. And uh, I came to again in kind of, I guess, around the beginning of the pandemic. Um, it was actually the pandemic, the beginning of it, where I was like, okay, I, I really, I, I need to figure out a food plan for myself and, and get me back in meetings and stuff. And I've been praying for willingness. And a fellow OA member called me up and asked me how my program was going. I said, well, I'm praying for willingness. And um, she goes, okay, well, that, that's good. You're praying, you know. <laughs> and um, about a week, maybe it was two weeks later, she phoned me back, how's your willingness? I said, I'm still praying. She said to me, Audrey, stop with the bullshit. What are you willing to do just for today? And I was like, out of my mouth came just for today, I'm willing to give up pop. And uh, when I said those words so quickly, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> because pop, pop was my go-to. I would drink a minimum of one liter of Coke Zero a day up to six liters in one day. And I was just like, oh my God. I, oh, Audrey, it's just for today. She said, just for one day, it's just for today. So I, I didn't have pop that day. And I found out eating potato chips with water is horrible. So the next day, I was thinking, well, later that day, I thought, you know, this bag of potato chips is finished. Maybe I'll add potato chips to my abstinence. So no potato chips and no pop. Those were my two go-tos. I would drink pop every day. I would eat a big bag of potato chips every day, sometimes two, sometimes three. It all depended what the store had on for sale. So I sit here today and I have not bought or eaten a potato chip in uh, two years, one month, and I don't know, however many days. The pop, I've had a few slips with pop. Um, 
in the last 48 hours, um, I've made a, a new connection, a deeper connection with my higher power and with my food plan. And I'm watching the carbs that I'm eating. I will hopefully one day at a time not have a pop again. Um, and uh, I, I, I need to find, I love going to the movies. I need to find a way to go to the movies where I won't look or stop at that concession stand. Um, and on at the Friday night meeting here in Vancouver, um, I had told my secrets and um, and then yesterday at uh, another OA meeting, I got to share my story of what it was like, what happened, and what it had been like, particularly for the last few weeks. Um, and I sit here today, and I've been abstinent for 48 hours or however long. Thank you very much. And I've been to a movie and I figured out a way that I can buy my ticket online and get to the theater and not have enough time to stop and get something. So, um, yeah. Um, a miracle that happened when, when I did come back to program, getting back to the step nine business, and reconnecting with my sponsor, I thought, okay, I got to start at step one again. And she's like, Audrey, you don't have to start at step one. We'll review your steps very quickly. We'll do your step eight. And then you're going to do your step nine. And I was just like, I thought there's no way I can do it. Step nine scared the bejesus out of me. Um, I wrote out my um, amends letters. I, I used to shoplift. Um, I went and talked to store managers. And the very first one where I, where, where I read my amends letter and I um, made financial restitution, that was an amazing experience. I never knew people could be so forgiving and so beautiful. Not one of the stores kept the money for themselves. It all went to charity. But that first one that I made, she wouldn't take the $500. She said to me, she says, 
Audrey, it sounds like you've been through a lot in your life. She says, I don't know what you've been through, but I think you've been through a lot. She goes, I want you to find a charity of your choice and give this money to them. And that really threw me for a loop because I'm thinking $500 and she doesn't want it. She wants me to find a charity of my choice. The little sick devil in my head thought for a moment, well, I can keep the $500 and she wouldn't know the difference. But then the sensible side of my brain said, Audrey, she goes, if you do that, you're going to have to make another amends. And that's not going to be $500. That's going to be $1,000. So I searched on the internet and um, I wanted to find a charity where the money would go to help children who had been abused sexually or, or some other ways neglected and um, for counseling or just something. And I found such a place in Vancouver. And um, when I sent that donation in, I requested that the tax receipt be written out to the owner of the drugstore that I had shoplifted from. Because I, I, don't, I don't need tax receipts for stuff I stole. Unfortunately, our lovely Canadian government has to give the tax receipt to the person who made the donation. So when I received that tax receipt, I phoned up the the government and they said we can't we can't we can't do it we need to make it to you so i had to shred that receipt um i i thought i thought i could get one for the far the pharmacy owner but it didn't work out that way um giving that amends gave me the strength, the power, the courage to go and make the next one. Same, similar thing happened. And that one gave me courage and strength and power to do the next one and so on and so on and so on. Um, doing my amends uh, and, and working up to doing my amends um, made me realize that I need to forgive the people who sexually abused me when I was a kid. Um, one of them is my brother. And uh, no matter how estranged we are now, I know I've forgiven him. Occasionally, there's something that creeps back in, but I don't sit and let it hang around because the longer I hang on to resentments, the longer my digging process is going to be. And um, those are my miracles that have happened to me. And there's a lot of other little miracles in between. But those are the greatest ones that have happened to me. Thank you for allowing me to share. Thank you, Audrey. Janice, I'm asking you to unmute. 
Hi, fellows. Um, I'm going to be needing to leave in a few minutes, but I thought I would share this miracle. Um, when I was in program the first time around, uh, this was back in the late 70s, um, early 80s, cell phones didn't exist. <clears throat> Even making a long distance phone call was a really big deal. And I worked out of town at least two weeks out of the, the month. Um, and I remember ask, asking my higher power for a sponsor that would allow me to connect with her or him um, when, even when I was on the road. <clears throat> well, the first person I asked had an 800 phone number through her work. So I was able to connect with her. I didn't follow through very well with that sponsor. I didn't work the steps, but that memory stayed with me and really keeps me aware that I am being cared for. So thank you guys. Thanks, Janice. Thanks I'm for joining us. Bye. Awesome. So I think we will take our next break now. Please be thinking about uh, stories to share. I have more, uh, but we don't all want to just listen to me. So I would love to hear your stories. I'm going to tell you one more time, at least, how to uh, raise your hand when you're ready to do that. And that is if you're on a computer on the reactions button on the bottom of the page, uh, if you click on the reaction button, you see a bunch of icons across the top and then a bar on the bottom that says raise hand. And that's how you raise your hand. But I'm going to go ahead and stop recording and take a five minute break and I will reconvene here in five minutes. So glad I'm remembering to do the recording. <laughs> um, one of the previous shares reminded me of an experience I had backpacking. You guys are going to get sick of my little war stories about backpacking or um, cross country skiing. This was my very first multi-night backpacking trip. I had gone on two backpacking trips for one night each. And this was <laughs> the very first trip with this boyfriend who went on the ski with me. Um, we were going for six nights in the Sawtooth Range in Idaho. Um, and we were about, we had gotten out of the car and we'd gone about a mile and we came to this creek, which was really more of a river than a creek. It was really deep and really wide and moving really fast. And I grew up in Montana where a fast moving creek had slippery rocks on the bottom. And you, if you got in the creek, you fell down because the rocks were really slippery. So I didn't want to walk in the creek. So I was looking at alternatives. Now we've gone about a mile from the car. That's all, we've barely gotten started. We're planning on six or seven miles a day and I'm only a mile into the first day. Uh, and I've hit this impediment. I don't wanna take my shoes off and walk across. I don't wanna walk across in my boots cause they're going to get, the water's gonna go over the top of my boots. But I see this tree that's fallen and it goes almost all the way across the creek. And it's really obvious that other people had used it as a bridge. 
So I'm like super excited. I have a way across the creek that doesn't involve getting wet or getting my boots wet or taking my shoes off and walking across. I now carry water socks that are appropriate for going across a creek and have nice sticky bottoms, but I didn't have those at the time. This was my very first trip out. So I say, I'm gonna go across this tree. And my boyfriend says, well, let me go first, make sure it works. So he goes across and he makes it look really hard. He's teetering and tottering and I'm thinking, oh, I'm gonna die on this stupid tree. But I'm like, okay, just take one, one step at a time, go one foot in front of another, let's see what happens. <clears throat> what I forgot to tell you, and for me, the big learning in this whole experience was up until this experience, I had always really treated people who were frozen with fear with disdain uh, and contempt. Uh, frozen with fear, what does that mean? That's just like, that's a choice, get over it, was really my attitude. So I head out onto this creek, this, this log over the creek, and I'm the creek had gotten narrower and deeper and faster. And the log went almost all the way to the other side. So I'm about halfway across <laughs> the log, and I get to a point where I, I can't go anymore. I, I, I don't feel comfortable taking the next step. So, <laughs> so I'm holding onto a branch that's sticking off the log. And the next branch that I can hold onto is two steps away. And I can't take a step or let go of this branch or I'm gonna fall. And so I just stood on the log and I'm thinking to myself, you can't stay on the log anymore. You got to move. You're getting exhausted. And I would switch from one leg primarily holding me up to the other leg primarily holding me up until the leg started to shake. And then I would switch back to the other leg until it started to shake. And then I would switch back to the other leg until it started to shake. And I was like, I just can't keep standing here. I'm exhausting myself and nothing is happening. I am not getting any further along. And I'm thinking to myself, if I fall in the creek, my, my backpack is going to get wet. My sleeping bag, which is down, is going to get wet and it's not going to be insulated anymore. I, I did not know what to do. I thought about squatting down and, and like putting my straddling the log and scooting along, but there were big branches sticking out of it. So there wasn't a way to do that. As I stood there, I have no idea how long, way too long. Um, I realized that my feet were pretty far apart, but that why, why I had stopped was my left leg was in front of my right leg and my left leg, my foot had landed on a really slopey part of the log. The log was particularly not flat right there where my foot was. And I, and I was afraid if I put weight on my left foot, much weight on my left foot, I would slip off the log. So I slid my left foot foot a little bit further forward, making my legs even further apart. But I found a fairly flat spot on the log. And I was able to walk off the log across the creek. <laughs> While I was stuck in the middle of the log, I remember having a conversation with God that went something like, oh, ah, this is what it's like to be frozen in fear. I get it now. I won't ever make fun of anyone ever again when I see them frozen in fear. I will respect them. You don't have to show me this lesson again. I get it. 
<laughs> please let me get off this log. And I got off the log and was humbled and had a wonderful learning opportunity and learning experience with being frozen in fear. It's quite real, <laughs> not what I thought it was. So, hey, um, Jan, did you want to share for just a minute about our seventh tradition opportunities? I sure would. Oh, I have to hit the share screen button first. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and post how to do seventh tradition in the chat. And I know you're going to show us more ways. So this is the OA Rise homepage that when you click on oarise.org, it takes you here. And most people just scroll down and click this link and look at the upcoming meetings. We're booked through August, uh, pretty much. Um, but I'm not sure they always see the how to contribute. We are um, we are self-supporting through our own contributions, and we don't always make enough. Uh, we don't always take in enough to cover our monthly expenses. So about three dollars a month covers our Zoom account and the you know background stuff we have to do. And it's really easy to contribute. All you have to do is click on the contribute button. And it takes you to our donate donation page and you can click any of these and donate with either PayPal or with a credit debit or credit. Well, in the US with a debit card, I think, which is a debit credit card. Um, in Canada, we can't necessarily, uh, I don't know if we can do it through PayPal, but we can't uh, necessarily contribute easily on this site. And so we suggest that you make a direct contribution to uh, OA World Service that you can do through the OA.org website. And um, this helps us carry the message. This helps, helps us, particularly here, um, to, uh, to keep this meeting going to keep it available, to keep the recordings up, which you can find by going to here, access the podcast, or there's another link as well. Um, and so we really, really, really want to remind you that that's an important part of fellowship. Uh, it's, I, I was thinking about this the other day. When I'm in a meeting, it's automatically, I have a few bucks in my pocket. It's there because I'm going to put it in a basket. And I... I'm guilty of forgetting to do that in, in online meetings. So please take a moment to contribute if you can. Um, if you're new, we ask that you keep that to purchase literature, but um, we want you to keep coming back. We want to be able to keep coming back. Uh, and that's how we'll be able to do it. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Jen. As I recall, our costs are about $21 a meeting. So just to give that context, if you could bear that in mind while you attend our meetings and maybe contribute to the extent you can, that would be awesome. Is there anyone else who has a, pro, a miracle in recovery that they would like to be willing to share with us? I'm a compulsive reader still, Jan. Um, 
I'm not sure if this is a miracle, but this is just an example of how <clears throat> of how Trish is spotlighting now. Yeah, sorry, how, I'm uh, trying to add you to the spotlight. <laughs> don't do that. There's so few of us. Um, anyway, just an example of how big and how small the OA world can be. Mm. Um, there's a, a local meeting that's you know 10 minutes from my house in a car that I have steadfastly refused to go to because I'd have to leave my home. And um, I don't feel like doing that period a lot these days. But I went there and um, one of the names on the, one of the contact names was somebody I know from, from outside a program. And I thought, there's no way it could be the same person. And uh, walked in the room and it was the same person. So, and I recall talking to that person many years ago about me being in a way and of course, they don't remember at all that conversation, but, um, you know, it just, you never know when you, when you tell another person your story, who's going to remember it and who's going to, even if they don't remember it, who's going to have some knowledge of the program and find it when they need to. So, um, so it was very cool to see that person and see, see them in a different context from what I normally do. So thanks. Awesome. Thank you, Jan. Oh, Cassie. Hey, everybody. I'm Cassie. I'm a compulsive eater. Um, this is my second go round in OA. And one of the things that I realized from different conversations and have realized, or especially the last bit of time here, is that I. Um, have never given a lot of thought or credit to the miracles. Um, and uh, so I, I'm going to go way back to my first abstinence, which was um, wonderful. And it lasted several years, even though basically, um, as I've said before, I turned my real my life over to the care of a food plan um, and has kept zooming right along. Um, but there was one, one day there, one time there, um, and, you know, it was very important to me. And I was, and I, of course, you know, I did great. And uh, um, I will say another thing here. I lost 100 pounds exactly. And I never gave that any credit whatsoever. Um, and I never heard anybody give it that much credit until this time I came in the program. And you know, there are meetings for 100 pounders and um, lots of other things like that. Um, you know, just didn't give any credit. It was like truly, um, and that's why I really say, gave my will and my life over the care of a food plan. I did the food plan that was, that they told you to do and I did it. And you know, I'd already been working the steps, you know, so, you know, I had that all wrapped up, didn't need to worry about that. Um, and the weight just came off, you know? Of course, I was a much younger woman than I am now. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, the food plan and not eating and staying abstinent was very important to me until, you know, until I hit the slippery slope um, a few years later. And the slope was, uh, you know, not an instant slide. It was a little slippery slope for a while. And then there was just that day where I said, screw it. Um, 
But, um, and I always do remember this, and I remember the person um, that it was, and it was a miracle that day. I tried calling, you know, she was made three phone calls, right? I tried calling three people in the program. Um, and if I didn't know anybody in OA, I knew somebody in another program, and literally nobody was answering the phone, and I knew I was going to eat. And um, I don't know why, but I called this young man that I worked with. And I was back in school at the time, and I worked in this um, like a student. Uh, um, I was worked as a student in a lab that I took classes in it was biology. So, and I'm like in my early thirties, and this guy's like 18, 19. and I'm sure he was surprised to hear from me. But he just talked to me for like a half an hour. We just talked about like whatever, and um, you know, pretty soon, you know, the time was up and over. We didn't really you know whatever you talked about was done and and i was fine you know i was fine after that um funny other part of the story um i did go to um i lived in southern arizona at the time and so i went with that guy and another woman that i worked with with my son um who was like seven at the time to disneyland these are two adults i had never been to disneyland in my life two adults who loved disneyland were willing to go and go do whatever and the four of us went and had like a long weekend trip to Disneyland some other sometime other time later on. Um, but um, this has come up, um, I'd like to say, quite a few times in the last whatever bit of time, in the last year, a couple of years, um, about the different things that are miracles in this program. And um, I'm being able to, I am able to see them much more than I ever did in the past. Um, so I'm really glad to be here today. I'm very, very much enjoying everybody's stories. Um, and I have to say, you guys probably can see somewhat, but I am laughing and crying at the same time about many, many things I've heard, which is, um, that's a miracle too, you know, really. So I'm very, very happy to hear everybody's stories and be here today. Thank you. Mm, thank you, Cassie. I'll take the spotlight off you so you don't have to. <laughs> be sitting here having everybody look at you. Um, is there anyone else who'd like to share? I, I have been thinking about other things to share about. So I'm going to launch on one. Um, by trade, I'm an attorney. I do wills and trusts and probate. Uh, in the course of my practice, I run into broken families a lot, a lot. That wayward child, that unreasonable parent, that results in uh, families having sometimes permanent, sometimes long-term uh, breaks. Um, when my younger son was 16, his dad and I divorced. And my son really struggled, or my younger son really, really struggled with it. Actually, both my boys did. My younger son and I were living in a very, very large house just the two of us. My law practice was in the downstairs and our house was in the upstairs. It was a very, very large house. Five bedrooms, four baths, very large house. And one day my son looked at me and said, I could live here if you didn't. And I thought, oh, this is, the, this is one of those opportunities to break my family. My reaction to his statement will determine whether our family is broken from this point forward. And I'm not willing to have a broken family. 
what I said to him was, that's probably true. What I didn't to say to him was, how would you pay for this house without me? I didn't say to him, right back at you, baby. <laughs> I don't like living with you either. I, I did not need to get nasty to get, to get past the conversation. And what it, it seemed to give him permission to, to like say what he really thought. He brief, briefly moved out into his dad's home and two months later moved back. And suddenly I was so much smarter than I had been before he left. <laughs> And he had a new perspective and a new outlook on life. And I just had to let him go. Go move in with that. Fine. Go ahead and move back in here. Fine. I'm just going to go with the flow and let, let life unfold. When he was 17, he came marching into my office. So we had, this was his junior year in high school. He was 17. He'd be 18 before he started his senior year. He had tried online school. He had tried, he had really explored alternatives and really not followed through on any of them. Um, so one day, I think it was about February of his junior year, he came marching into my office and he said, I'm dropping out of school. And I checked in with my higher power. Okay, God, now what? And I got super calm super it's fine it's fine i was like okay i said oh uh do you need me to sign something to let you drop out of school he said yeah do you have the paperwork no well come back when you have the paperwork so he turns on his heel and he walks out and the next day he comes marching in my office I'm dropping out of school. I said, so you said. I said, do you have the paperwork I need to sign? Yeah, give it to me. So he handed it to me and I signed it and hand it back. And he stood there in front of my desk and he said, we're, 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 we're not gonna have a fight about this? I said, no, no, we're not gonna have a fight about this. And he looked really confused. Like, don't you care? <laughs> And I said, sweetheart, it's your education and it's your life. And you're going to be 18 before you start your senior year. I cannot make you finish high school. And I'm not going to make you finish your junior year. If it's not working, it's not working. Oh, he said, so do you have a plan? He said, yeah, I'm going to get a GED and, and go to the local community college. Oh, great. Have you looked into your plan? No. Oh, no, I haven't. <laughs> Would you like to look into it now on my computer? <laughs> yeah. So, so we went in to look at the computer and discovered that a local uh, government agency offered preparatory classes for the GED, which is a like a graduation equivalent exam process that gives you the equivalent of a high school diploma without finishing high school. I had never known anyone who got a GED instead of going to high school without first dropping out of high school and being older. The people I knew who got GEDs were all in their 20s. But he said, no, you don't have to wait. You can do it instead of high school. I could start 
at uh, the local community college before I would start my senior year in high school. Okay. So we look into this program and the GED has four tests on four subject areas and you have to pass all four tests. And the year before the tests had made been made harder and reduced the pass rate by like 40%. Um, but the first step with the local community, uh, governmental community organization was to take four practice tests and then they would give you personalized study materials to help you pass the actual test. So he went in and he took all four practice tests and he passed all four, the first try. I was shocked. This is my kid who's checked out all the time. I didn't think he'd learned anything in school. <laughs> but like, I'm not going to tell that to him. <laughs> like, I'll just be delightfully shocked. So then he went down and he took the first three tests. Now the test that he hasn't yet taken is math. And he came to me and he said, um, you know, those practice tests I took, my scores were like 20 points higher than my scores are actually coming in because the practice tests are under the old system. They made the test harder and the tests I'm taking now under, under the new harder system. And, and I'm barely passing them instead of flying colors. And I'm worried about math because I only passed the practice test by about 10 points. I said, oh, I've learned, don't talk. With this guy, don't talk, don't make suggestions. He will do the opposite. He will argue with me. <laughs> Not gonna make suggestions unless he asks. If he asks, then he's listening. If he hasn't asked, I keep my mouth shut. It's a hugely difficult part of my program, <laughs> keeping my mouth shut. But sometimes the hardest thing I do is just, so keeping my mouth shut, he said, well, what should I do? Ah, a question. I can answer a question. I said, did, did that governmental organization give you some preparatory materials to help you get ready? Oh, and now I have to not say anything else. I have to shut up. I can't say I would suggest you look into that because then he won't. <laughs> I just get to shut up. So I'm being quiet, keeping my little lips together. It's the hardest thing I do sometimes. And he came back about an hour later and he said, I can't believe these materials. They fill in gaps in my math knowledge that I, I knew I had gaps, but I, by the time they would begin teaching me something, I'd be asleep by the time they got to the stuff I missed. And then I'd wake up. <laughs> this is what I thought he did every day at school, fall asleep. <laughs> and he said, these materials are just designed to fill in those gaps that I missed. And I'm learning a ton in math right now. It's like, yay, I'm so happy for you. I wish you weren't such a butthead, but I'm really happy for you. So he did complete his GED and start at the community college before he finished his junior year in high school. Um, he did not succeed at college. <laughs> I'd love to say it now, he's a doctorate. And uh, yeah, that's not the story, <laughs> but it's okay. It's not my life, it's not my story. Really, uh, he's a wildland firefighter in the summer, the last, not this summer, but the last three summers, he was a wildland firefighter, which gave me the opportunity again and again and again and again to commend him to his higher power for safety. Uh, there were many harrowing experiences he had as a wildland firefighter, most of which I did not know about until much later. 
Every once in a while, I would know more than I wanted to know about what he was walking into. He called me last summer and said, uh, I'm being pulled off of this fire that I've been on for 12 days and I'm being put on um, the fire up near Detroit, Oregon. Because the night before, the Detroit, Oregon fire blew up and burned the entire city of Detroit. The whole town was gone. They're just chimneys where houses used to be and businesses used to be. He said, I'm being moved up to um, Detroit and my engine is at the front of the convoy coming off of this fire and going to the Detroit fire because we have a paramedic on board our engine and they need, they don't know, they can't tell, they can't get through on satellite and they can't get through on um, helicopters because the smoke is too thick. We don't know what we're walking into. Thinking, don't call me when I do this. <laughs> ah! <laughs> You got this, you got this kiddo, you're going to do great. <laughs> so he said, what we've been told is that the fire blew up overnight. The town is gone, they think. And we could be walking into anything. We could be walking into a fire trap where we can't get out readily. We could be walking into people on fire, houses on fire, people panicked. And we've been told just to remain calm, <laughs> do whatever we can to be helpful. Thank God I have a program that I can turn to for guidance when life gets really, really challenging. That was one of the harder conversations I've had with him, knowing that he's going into the unknown. And the reality is every day, each one of us goes into the unknown. I wake up, I assume the highway will be open to my office. I assume the off-ramp will be open as I get to my office. I assume the traffic lights will work. I assume there will not be a massive wreck. I assume my building will still be there. I assume the people who I work with will show up and do their jobs. And most days my assumptions are accurate. And my practice teaches me that some days everything goes wrong, catastrophically, permanently wrong, or at least not the way I was thinking it was gonna be. I, I hesitate to call it wrong because that judges it. It's definitely different than I planned. I feel incredibly privileged to be the person people rely on for guidance and support. When someone shows up in my office and says something to the effect of, Mom and dad were coming home from vacation yesterday and there was a car wreck and they're both dead and I don't know anything. I don't know where to start. I feel so privileged to touch people at those kind of critical moments in their lives to be a support system. It's part of why I love what I do, which is also program working. Through program, I went from a very general practice to a very specific practice where we do what I call dance in the nexus between law and death. We help people plan for death and grapple with death after it happens. The legal parts of it anyway, and very often more than that, because sometimes our clients have nowhere, nowhere else to turn. 
they're not local people. They're dealing with someone who died locally and they don't have friends. They don't have a support system here, but we can be that while they're here for the time they need us. And I don't wanna work with people who can't handle that. I don't wanna work with people who need to make it funny. There's no emergency room humor in our office. It's not just frowned on, it's not allowed. <laughs> I don't want us making fun of client situations that are so painful that we're uncomfortable enough to need to make fun of it, to make it funny instead of real. I wanna hold space for people. So on that heavy note, <laughs> are there any other shares people would like to contribute toward our Miracles in Recovery meeting? So Jan, Audrey, Cassie, you take a group conscience to end a little bit early. We're about 10 minutes early. Cassie, are you ready to read the closing part of our meeting format? I see a little nod and head. Awesome. Let's go ahead and do that. And I do want to close with um, the promises, the OA promises, Roseanne's prayer. And I will sh screen share that so we can all read it together. I'll also make it possible for all of us to unmute ourselves so we can do that as a group. Okay. Thank you everyone uh, for being here today. Thank you to Trish for being our speaker today. It was wonderful to have everyone with us and we appreciate everyone sharing your experience, strength and hope um, while giving service to the OA program. Together we get better. A reminder that the opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members who do not represent OA as a whole. Please remember to honor our commitment to each other's anonymity. Take the stories, but leave the names behind. OA Rise's goal is twofold. One goal is to provide speaker meetings and recordings to support OA members. The second goal is to support the World Service Office. We will post the seventh edition contribution information more time in the chat. Please give what you're able to give so we can continue to keep OA Rise going. Lastly, OA Rise continues to look for members who are willing to give service to the meeting. We are always looking for speakers or perhaps speaker suggestions, as well as members who would be interested in joining our committee and those who could volunteer once a month to help run the Zoom meeting. No previous Zoom experience is necessary. If you're willing to be of service, please send a message to one of the co-hosts, or you can stay after we close the meeting and talk to us in person. Whatever you'd like to do there, if you um, like to volunteer or if you have speaker suggestions for us. Thank you again, everyone, for being with us today. After we close the meeting, we will open up the chat for a short period of time. You can unmute yourselves and everyone can connect together. Um, please join us for another wonderful experience. Um, our experience with and hope again on July 17th will be our next OA Rise meeting. And I should have a topic for that there, but I think I misplaced that piece of paper. We do have another wonderful speaker um, on July 17th. And I forget what the topic is. Come and look at, it's on the OA Rise site. Yes, it's personal journey with through the steps for a personal relationship with God. Oh, awesome. That will be another wonderful topic. So hope we see everybody there. And after a moment of silence, 
these um, little clothes with. Roseanne's prayer, and you are now allowed to unmute yourselves if you'd like to, to join us. Can you see it? Audrey's saying, oh, no, Audrey's oh, saying yes. Oh, okay. oh now, I, now I can unmute. Sorry, it wasn't letting me unmute. Huh, I, it's supposed to let you unmute, but I'm... I'm mean, just going to ask everybody to unmute. You can if you want. Okay, the OA promise. I put my hand, put in, my hand, hand in yours, and, and together, together we can we do, do what we could never, we could never, never do, do alone. No longer, no longer is there a sense of hopelessness. No longer, no longer must we each depend on our, our own unsteady we are all together, all together now, now, reaching, reaching out our hands, hands for power, power and strength, strength greater than ours. And, ours. and as, as we, we join hands, we find love, love and understanding, understanding beyond our dreams. Keep coming back. Come it back. works if you work it. Yay. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Great you meeting. so much. Really wonderful. Thank you.